What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. And we are not a new podcast anymore, but for those of you out there tuning in for the first time, basically what we do on this podcast is I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published something uh, or on a topic or on a person that uh, we think you'd like to hear a conversation about. And then uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go out and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Professor David E. Bernstein. And Professor Bernstein is the Executive Director of the Liberty and Law Center at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. And he has been a visiting professor at Brooklyn Law School, Georgetown University Law Center, the University of Michigan School of Law, and William and Mary Law School. And he has published dozens of frequently cited scholarly articles in journals such as Boston University Law Review, California Law Review, Georgetown Law Review, Michigan Law Review, Northwestern University Law Review, Notre Dame Law, Law Review, Yale Law Review, etc., etc., etc. But you probably know him most from uh, blogging at the Vola Conspiracy. And he's the author of many books, including Lawless, the Obama Administration's Unprecedented Assault on the Constitution and the Rule of Law, Rehabilitating Lochner, Defending Individual Rights Against Progressive Reform, and Only One Place of Redress, African Americans, Labor Regulations, and the Courts from Reconstruction to the New Deal. And lastly, he is the author of Classified, the Untold Story of Racial Classification in America, uh, which was published back in July by Bombardier Books, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Professor Bernstein, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I have to say your book was um, – I, I was constantly sort of just uh, repeatedly like sighing reading your book or and just uh not enraged but just <laughs> like um uh this the whole system of <laughs> racial classification that comes down from the federal government is just so uh maddening and just arbitrary and strange and just incoherent and as you say in the uh I think it's actually the first paragraph in the introduction, um, is that basically the official American racial and ethnic classifications are arbitrary and inconsistent, both in their design and enforcement, and that these categories are socially constructed and historically contingent, and they evolved from older racist categories and have been barely updated since the 1970s. Uh, Well, basically we'll start there because that's uh, sort of, well, not the gist of the book, but the... the main argument of the book, but, um, but expanding on that, what, uh, what made you want to write this book and what was the, the genesis of it? So we all, you know, um, check these boxes all the time about our race. When your kid that goes to school, they ask you to fill out a form, ask you what your race is, 
apply for a mortgage, ask you what your race is. Go to the doctor, ask you what your race is. Uh, and the categories that we use are all consistent with each other. It's always the same classifications. And at some point, I just sort of wonder, well, are these all the same everywhere? Where do they come from? Why do we use these? Uh, the one thing that especially intrigued me was why do we use one classification for everyone who happens to be of Spanish-speaking ancestry, and we make that as a special ethnic classification, but we don't recognize any other ethnic group as a minority group if they're also potentially white. Uh, and the other thing that I was wondering about is, well, how did it come to be that Asian includes everyone from Pakistan to the Philippines and basically 65% of the world's population, if any of them immigrate to the U.S., are in this one category when this is such an unbelievably diverse classification. Even just within India, there are lots of different ethnic groups, much less in all of Asia. Right. And so that was you know, what intrigued me about it. And uh, then I saw that I saw that some states have slightly different classifications that they use when people are applying for minority contracts. So I started off by just looking into uh, how what, how federal and state classifications differ among each other. And within the federal government itself, I discovered the federal government actually, uh, with very few exceptions, uses uniform classifications. Well, how did that get to be? And then I started looking into the history of how we got what turns out to be official racial and ethnic classifications the government promulgated in 1977. And I think I wasn't aware, and I think the vast majority of Americans aren't aware that there was an official rule in the Federal Register where they published all the rules saying these are America's official racial classifications, at least for government purposes. This is what the classifications are, uh, Hispanic, ethnicity or not, and then all the different race ones. Uh, this is how they're defined. They said at the time these are not supposed to be used for anthropological or sociological purposes or much less scientific purposes, and they're not supposed to be determinants of any eligibility for programs, so that's supposed to be used for affirmative action. But inevitably, I think, once the government decided these were the official classifications, right. uh, they were the most convenient things for everyone to use. Interest groups form around them. People start to identify with them. You know, no one 50 years ago would have called himself or herself Hispanic because that wasn't a phrase people use in Latin America. It's not a phrase people used in the U.S. When we talked about Hispanic, it was like, related to Spain, like Hispanic literature, Spanish yeah. literature. No, pe people weren't Hispanic. Once the government decided that this is a category, we started using it, and now we naturally call people Hispanics. Yeah, it's so weird. Well, in Latin America, or Hispanic America, whatever, they don't even, uh, outside of the United States, like no one calls themselves, like if you go to I mean, Venezuela or uh, Peru or something like that. Like they don't, they don't call themselves Hispanics. Sure, and the people yeah. who live in these countries have anything from you know rivalries to actual hatred uh, for people from their neighboring countries. Because you know I'm not a big expert in Latin American history, but I lived in Peru for a while. There were all sorts of wars historically. You know you would not. Uh, you would insult a Peruvian by saying, "Oh, you're the same as a Bolivian," you know, and so forth. Right, yeah. Much less a Puerto Rican. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, so you said so that government direct that's uh, OMB Statistical Directive 15, correct? That one that came out in 1977, which sort of um, that's still 
basically the template for what we use today uh, for all this this racial <laughs> categorization. Right. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't really meant to be nearly as important as it became. Basically, you had an issue. With sort of like fi- a social security number where, like, you you know, when it first social security first came out, like, oh, you'll never need your number for anything other than this. And now, like, you need your social security number for, you know, basically anything you're ever going to do that uh, of any import uh you know in your life you're gonna need that social security yeah yes that's a good analogy i hadn't thought of you know at the time they had a legitimate reason for trying to do this which was they were trying to enforce uh civil rights laws and they had to get data about voting rights and data about what's going on in schools that had been segregated and they didn't really have official classification so they were getting data from different sources that used different categories and different definitions so we talked about hispanic Back in the 70s, some agencies were saying Spanish-speaking households. Some were saying Spanish surname. Some collected data on Mexicans and Puerto Ricans, but not on Cubans. Some collected data only on Mexicans. Some had another category that would include people like Cajuns or Quebecois in New England or other local minority groups. He said, you know what, we really need some uniform data just so we're comparing apples and apples. And at the time, the vast majority of Americans were either black or white, and in particular because Hispanics were considered white. So everyone kind of knew that if you had any kind of black ancestry in the U.S., you were considered to be black, uh, a remnant of Jim Crow and the one-drop rule. And if you otherwise, you were almost, with, with the exception of a small number of Asian and Native Americans, less than 1% at the time, everyone was white. So no one was really thinking too in, in too much detail about these other classifications and how we'd have huge immigration from Latin America and Asia and become so much more diverse and these groups would be so much more populous. That'd be a real problem just to try to stick everyone into the same category. Not to mention the African-American category sure. is a lot less coherent now because uh, 21% of African-Americans in the U.S. are first or second generation immigrants who've had very different experiences than people whose ancestors were here through slavery and Jim Crow and so forth. Yeah, and all these minority, those official minority categories, they didn't really start to emerge until after World War II, like 1946, correct? Yeah, I mean, until World War II, everyone wanted to be white if they could because there was discrimination against other groups uh, typically, you know, if there are segregated schools or interracial marriage laws, you prefer to be on the white side of the black-white spectrum because of all the legal and social disadvantages that were associated with being uh, a black person. So Mexican-American groups, for example, were very insistent that Mexicans were white. We, they had full treaty rights under uh, the, the treaty we signed with the Mexican government after the 1848 uh, Mexican-American War and so forth. Uh, it was only after, and basically the census just had black, white, uh, oriental, which as they would have called it then, <laughs> or sometimes they just had Japanese or Chinese, uh, and then a category for American Indians. And you know, again, people um, were lobbying essentially that, hey, we'd like to be in the white category if there's any doubt. Then after World War II, once we started getting civil rights laws, the question was, who's going to be, everyone's protected by civil rights laws, but who is the government going to keep track of? Once the government starts telling defense contractors, we want to know that you're not discriminating, and the defense contractors say, great, but how do we prove it to you? The government says, well, keep track of who uh, you're employing. And the defense contractors come back and say, well, we know who's black 
basically, you know, with, with, with very little room for error. But how do we know whether we're hiring Jews or Catholics or Italians or Poles or all sorts of other groups that, you know, you can't just tell us by looking at them. And that became an issue that went back and forth. And the civil rights group said, hey, maybe we should just limit it to the racial minorities because they get uh, the worst treatment anyway. So the initial rule was, okay, report to us who's black, who's white, and who is Mexican or Spanish-American, they sometimes called it. And the idea there was we're not really concerned with Hispanics in general. We're concerned with people who, quote-unquote, look Mexican, you know, darker skin, mixed race, mm -hmm. because those are the ones we think will be facing discrimination. Uh, and we might as well just throw in Asians because they look different too, and there aren't that many of them, so who cares? It was not really any controversy about that. So just by kind of happenstance, it was considered sort of rude, illegal, inherently discriminatory to ask people, are you Jewish, are you Catholic, are you Polish, are you Italian? So the whole idea was we we're only going to count the minorities who, could, who are visibly different than everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of in that arbitrary way we decided which groups were the official minority groups in the U.S. It's yeah, it's so weird. It, it almost like uh, like you said, we'll <laughs> sort of count the ones that look different. Uh, this whole thing sort of carries a slight odor of uh, phrenology and you know and all that like. Uh, you know, all that pseudoscience uh, from, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, you know, with like African skulls and like European skulls and all that sort of thing. It's just so uh, perverse. <laughs> like the whole system is just so weird. And uh, I mean, it, it makes sense why it's in place the way it is. I mean, just knowing American politics, but it's just so... Um, almost racist in its own in its own way you know well one thing that's really ironic is that back in the 1920s uh the supreme court was faced with the issue of enforcing the asian exclusion act which prohibited people who are deemed asian from immigrating to u.s and becoming naturalized as citizens but the act doesn't define who's asian so some lighter skinned high caste indians who have been in the united states or very many of them said hey we're caucasians we have fair skin we want to be considered like someone who looks like nikki haley let's say we want to be considered white and the federal and the supreme court said well you are caucasian but you're not considered to be white uh, <laughs> uh, by the average person. Then in the 1970s, when they, they were making these statistics, uh, they initially, not wanting to be racist in that way, said, <laughs> well, um, you are also Caucasians. We're just going to we are going to stick you in with the white classification. And by then, an Indian American lobbying group said, well, yeah, we're Caucasian, but we don't want to be white because we want to be included in minority business enterprise programs and affirmative action and whatnot. So at the last minute, they were switched from the white classification to the Asian, ironically recreating the same racist classification that the Supreme Court had adopted mm. back in the 20s. But, you know, with this really odd flavor, because, again, what does someone who is East Asian, like from China, have to do with someone who sure. is from yeah. India? Yeah, and the whole white uh, category is just so kind of stupid and just like a hodgepodge of... It's basically everybody who isn't uh, black or or 
or like East Asian really, or I mean, what what used to be considered, uh, you know, Oriental, um, or and um, and Native Americans or Indians, because uh, like you said, uh, um, South Asians or uh, Indians, Pakistanis are are considered white. Um, so you know, so are Arabs, uh, <laughs> Europeans. Um, uh, like I said, basically every like the whole like the the whole white <laughs> category is just so uh, amusingly weird. I didn't, you know, the one thing that's in the book that you know is very interesting to me, maybe to your listeners, is that there was a road not traveled. That uh, there were various times when different white interest groups did try to get their groups counted as being part of the minority category. <laughs> and there were congressional hearings and there was actually even legislation requiring some government agencies to create uh, special rules to make sure that what we used to call white ethnics, like Italians and Poles and mm -hmm. Jews and Greeks were also uh, so, you know, being counted and considered by the civil rights laws. Uh, but, you know, in practice, the civil rights agencies became political patronage for the organized, larger organized interest groups, in particular African-Americans, but also uh, Mexican-American groups. And the people who were appointed to the positions of authority in these agencies said, we're just not going to go there. We don't think white people uh, of any particular subgroup need uh, to be counted or considered specially, so we'll, we'll just stick with the visible minorities. But there were certainly, it was, it, it certainly was conceivable if things had, if the ball had sort of bounced slightly differently the other way, that Hispanics would all be considered white, but Italians, uh, Jews, Poles, you know, other <laughs> sort of Mediterranean or Catholic groups would have been deemed to be like other. In mm -hmm. fact, um, the, the Civil Rights Commission in 1973, uh, the U.S. Civil Rights Commission actually talked about the emerging racial classifications, which have not yet been codified, and they said that they point out that many agencies do have an other category, and they suggested that instead of it being black, Native American, etc., and white, that it be other, because otherwise you're creating this pseudo race of white people which you know just as i said asia is diverse well why do people from iceland people from morocco and people <laughs> from armenia have in common other than they're not you know the other groups yeah yeah it's um yeah why don't you talk about about uh you might have brought this up a little bit earlier but uh, use this term a lot in the book legal whiteness uh what exactly is legal whiteness so I define legal whiteness as people who, however they think of themselves, the federal government has decided to legally define them as white. So every time there's a census, every 10 years, I'm Jewish myself, you see stories in the Jewish newspapers about Jews debating what they should put down. Well, you know, we don't really think of ourselves as being white in the sense that we were, you know, white comes from us being European, but the Europeans never accepted us. They wound up murdering most of us, but there's no category for Jews, but we're not the other category. Should we put down other? Should we write in Jewish? What should we do? And there are many groups like that, like Arab Americans actually sure, have been yeah. lobbying to change their class, and Iranians also to change their classification to Middle Eastern uh, and North African, Italian Americans, uh, there's like a little bit of 
what I consider false history that Italian Americans were historically not considered white. That's not quite true. They were not considered assimilable into the American mainstream, which is not quite the same as not being white. But they felt like you know they were at sort of the bottom of the economic and educational barrel. They face a lot of discrimination, both for being Catholic and because most of them are actually from Sicily for being uh, darker than than most Americans. Uh, and they you know they had lobby there were lobbying efforts to have them included in some sort of non whatever the non-white or non-majority uh, classification but eventually the government just decided that all of these groups anyone who's from the middle east north africa uh or europe uh, by descent is white regardless of their particular subgroup yeah is there a boundary between uh white status and official minority status and is there a category um, where you could simultaneously simultaneously be white and have legal non-whiteness? <laughs> well, there's two there's two different way, different ways to answer that. One answer is that there are some countries where your ancestors come from there. I think it's a little ambiguous, like. The former Soviet republics that border on like India and Pakistan and whatnot, uh, those folks were basically deemed white when the Soviet Union was around because the Soviet Union was considered a European country, even though much of it's in Asia. Uh, and Afghanistan, for example, historically was still within the white sphere. So mm-hmm. our ta- our people from Tajikistan or uh, Uzbekistan. Or, Uzbe- yeah. yeah. What, what exactly are they? I think a lot of them probably put down Asian, at least if they don't think it's going to be a disadvantage. But at least when someone from one of the, I forgot which stand it was, tried to get white status for purposes of the um, uh, small business administration programs that are for minorities. And they said, well, you have a point about the Soviet Union not existing anymore and we should maybe consider but we'll just say that you're disadvantaged regardless so we're doing it right. they didn't want to have they, you know, they didn't want to make an official pronouncement the other way of uh, answering that question is that Hispanic Americans as we call them now are in this really kind of odd situation because again um, they are deemed to be an ethnic group, not a racial group. And it right. makes a certain amount of sense whether you think races really exist or socially constructed. Whatever you think about it, it's really hard to see how you define Hispanics. It could be anyone literally from a 100% European Spaniard mm-hmm. to a 100% indigenous person from Mexico to a 100% African-descended uh, descendant of slaves uh, from Costa Rica or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um but they're still, but but they still are in a separate classification. From we still ask, are you Hispanic or not? And for about the first twenty years or so, or and even thirty years in some cases, even though it's deemed an ethnic group, people are asked to check one box and one box only. So you could be Hispanic or black, or Hispanic or white. And then the OMB cracked down in 1997 and said, no, we want you to ask the question separately: Are you Hispanic? If not, uh, if you are, then what race are you? Or if you're not, what race are you? Either way. Uh, so the people, lots of people check the Hispanic box and then also check about 50%. That's less than the most recent census. But historically, about 50% of people who check Hispanic also check white. So that means that you are white and you have 
but you don't really have legal whiteness because you're treated for affirmative action purposes, for purposes of the government requiring everyone to keep statistics as a special group separate from the general white population. Mm. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more of the Hispanic thing. And, uh, you know, and who gets to be... <laughs> who gets to like qualify all right put, put it this way for example so um my grandfather's on my mother's side side of the family is from cuba uh but my great-grandmother her family is from cuba but they're all basically from spain and then my great-grandfather was just a white dude from minnesota i believe and he was actually a one of the Rough Riders, and uh, served in Cuba, and then got discharged, and then came back and lived in Cuba and married my great grandmother. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> so he's white technically. She's Cuban. So then my grandfather's born. That makes him like half Cuban, I guess, or something like that. Or right. and then my mother would be a quarter. So that makes me like an eighth. Would the do I would not. I actually, uh, am I actually Hispanic being one eighth, <laughs> possibly even less than that Cuban or, or how would that work? So, you know, there were, di- there were different ways <laughs> the government could have gone with this back in the seventies. Uh, once they were doing the classification, they were using Spanish surname for a long time, but that mm-hmm. didn't make any sense because you could marry someone with a Spanish name. You could be Italian, but have a Spanish sounding name. Yeah. There's so no, there's we- no, there's no Spanish surname that my, my great grandmother's uh, maiden name was Burger, so right. Uh, so that, and, yeah, and contrary wise, you could not have a Spanish surname but be 100 percent Hispanic. So they, so they got rid of that. They could have gone with sort of a mestizo category or you know indigenous slash mestizo people who are, who are fully or partly of Indian descent and therefore may face racial discrimination, which is what more, some of the more left wing activists want. In fact, a lot of the Chicano activists really didn't want a Hispanic classification because mm-hmm. they thought white people should not be included at all, uh, that it's supposed to be for the mixed race. Um, they could have gone with Latino, which would have included Brazilians, but not Spaniards. And instead, they ultimately went with Hispanic. It's kind of an interesting story. All <laughs> they really did was they literally said, okay, we need to come up with a new classification for these new rules we're making. Let's get one volunteer who's a Mexican-American, one volunteer who's a Cuban-American and one volunteer who's a Puerto Rican-American representing the three largest groups, all three, all who work for the government, and just sort of sit them in the conference room for a few weeks, let them hash it out. Sounds like the start of a joke. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, the funny thing is, like, why were Cubans included to begin with? Because Cubans were overwhelmingly Caucasian-looking and considered themselves white and appeared to others to be white. We know, you know Desi Arnaz was able to co-star with Lucy uh, in I Love Lucy, so obviously he was not considered non-white, or that wouldn't have been allowed in the 50s uh, culturally. Mm -hmm. So the answer is because Richard Nixon in the 70s said, wait a second, we're starting to give affirmative action and other benefits to people with Spanish-speaking ancestry. If we're giving it to Mexicans and we're giving it to Puerto Ricans, they vote for Democrats. We need to give it to Cubans because they vote for Republicans. Uh, <laughs> so that's how – so once you let Cubans in, you basically have to let everyone in because, of you know, why not Spaniards then? They're white, sure. white Cubans. So in any event, um, going to your question though, uh, the official definition they came up with 
is anyone who's of Spanish origin or culture. So if you want to look um, very uh, technically, you know, just literally at the law, if you can, you know, part of the underlying basis here is that you really have to consider yourself to be Hispanic, right? Self-identity. So if you consider yourself to be Hispanic... <laughs> but self-identities are so fluid nowadays, right? That's <laughs> true. Nevertheless, uh, that's, a, that's something they also didn't anticipate, that we have sort of identity entrepreneurs who shift their identity uh, in ways, in whatever useful way. But if you consider yourself Hispanic, you know, and there's no way of proving you don't, uh, and you have Hispanic ancestry, no matter how far back, including great-grandparents, then you're Hispanic. In fact, I have a case in uh, the book where someone said, I'm a Sephardic Jew. Uh, they didn't question that he was. I don't know if he really was or not. His name you know, was very generic. Uh, but he said, I'm a Sephardic Jew. My ancestors were expelled from Spain 500 years ago, uh, and uh, therefore I'm of Spanish origin. So this is where it gets interesting. So the lower... So this was an administrative decision uh, in the Small Business Administration. The administrative um, you know, bureaucrats said, wait a second, you don't, you don't look Hispanic, you don't speak Spanish, you don't have any ties to the Hispanic community, uh, you don't have a Spanish-sounding name, you've never faced discrimination for being Hispanic, so even though you're of uh, Spanish origin, we're not going to give you that classification. He appealed, and the administrative law judge who heard the appeal said, all that stuff is irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether you look Hispanic and so forth and so on. Uh, all that matters is that you meet the statute. Statute says Spanish origin or Spanish origin. And that's something that's gone back and forth in courts and administrative <laughs> agencies. I would say that I think I think the the law is very clear that it goes it's just what if you think of yourself as Hispanic and you have a Spanish speaking ancestor, you are able to do that, but it is it is in some sense against the intent of the category. Uh, but and there are courts that have tried to go well. Like there's one example where uh, in New York, where someone said I'm Hispanic, and they said in New York you have to be of Hispanic culture and origin, not just uh, origin. Uh, and your ancestors came from Italy to Argentina, and then to the U.S. So you never actually had sp Spanish culture, and therefore you're not Hispanic. There's another. My favorite though, I think there was a case. I think it was when the FCC used to give preferences and licenses to, uh, to to Hispanics. They said, uh, well, you're, this was actually, actually just like your, your family. Your great-grandfather is Cuban, uh, but, but we don't know what to do with that, so we'll give you partial credit. Mm. So we'll, we'll just say you're partially Hispanic. <laughs> yeah. um, that was like with, uh, what's his name, um, George Zimmerman, uh, the guy that uh, killed Trayvon Martin, uh, <laughs> that... Uh, uh, everyone assumed he was a white dude at first. I mean, like a regular run-of-the-mill, not Hispanic white guy. And then it turned out he was actually, uh, I guess his mother was Peruvian or something, and he considered right. himself Hispanic. So they kept, like all the papers kept going out of the way to call him a white Hispanic. Uh, I mean, in, fair, in <laughs> fairness to the papers, that is actually a real classification the government oh, okay. uses all the time. But I actually, I was curious, you know, this is probably one of the things that sparked my interest. I actually looked at the New York Times archives. They had never referred to somebody as a white Hispanic until, Up until that point. Yeah. So, so they were all on board with the all Hispanics are people of color. You know, kumbaya, we're all going to, the, the people of color are going to uh, lead us to a more tolerant, <laughs> liberal, democratic future. Uh, oh, but wait a second. We wanted this to be a race conflict. That's our narrative. 
So mm -hmm. Zimmerman has to be a white Hispanic. Although, you know, if you look at Zimmerman, he looks, I mean, he looks relatively dark, you know. I, I if, like, if, if you were, like, top of your head, if someone's like, is this guy Hispanic, you'd say, like, you would figure most people would be like, yeah, probably. Yeah, if I didn't know his last name, they thought you know, his last name was Zimmerman. But if you looked at him and said, does this guy look, you know, obviously Hispanic, <laughs> I don't like to say looks Hispanic because it's a wide range. Yeah. But if you, but if you said, like, if I if you told me this guy's Hispanic, well, I look at him and say, oh, well, he doesn't have what I associate, you know, as a common Hispanic. I would say, oh, yeah, he looks, you know, I wouldn't doubt it. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, this whole thing. Uh, moving on from uh, Hispanicity, I guess is the word. I don't even know if that is a word. Uh, but uh, talk well, about some of the in the book, so <laughs> it is now. Uh, <laughs> it is now. Uh, what about, I mean, there's in the Asian thing too. I mean, um, again, it's just such a hodgepodge. I mean, this is probably where I'm going to get canceled right now, but, uh, in defense of the term Oriental, like at least with Oriental, like it was a little bit uh, like further descriptive than just Asian, you know, like if, if someone said, Oh, he's an Oriental, you figure, okay, well, he's from like that, you know, that Eastern, uh, rim of uh, of Asia, you know, Korea, China, Japan, something like that. Uh, but again, Asian can be, uh, you know, a white guy in Siberia, uh, you know, a white Russian in Siberia, uh, Hmong people, uh, you know, Han Chinese, um, Pakistanis and Indians and uh, Filipinos, which are, uh, I, I, I not Hispanic. I don't know. I can't remember. Are Philippine, Filipinos Hispanic? Well, right not? now, <laughs> right now, you can check Asian and Hispanic. Okay. Uh, one reason, in fact, that Hispanic was not made a race was that Asian groups were afraid that Filipinos, who are still a pretty large group, they're actually the largest group of Asian Americans in the country, but it mm -hmm. used to be a much higher percentage before we had more, you know, internal diversity. They were afraid that they all start calling themselves Hispanic uh, <laughs> rather than Asian. They lose their constituents. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, there's at least three major groups that you could break Asians into. South Asians, like Indians and Pakistanis. East Asians, what we used to call Orientals. They still, until very recently, they still use that phrase in uh, England. They called uh, South Asians Asians. Uh, and then <laughs> Filipinos are really... Mostly, you know, ethnographic studies tell us Austronesians. So they're right. more related to people like in the islands, like the like news, like Maori and Tongans and, and Hawaiians, than they are to uh, Japanese and Chinese. Although the funny thing is, in the 1990s, Native Hawaiians lobbied for a new classification. There used to be Asian American Pacific Islander, and there are mm -hmm. still groups that use the AAPI uh, lingo, but they said, look, the problem is that we Native Hawaiians don't have great economic and educational success on average, and then we apply to college in California, and they put us in the same category as Asian, and we can't get into Berkeley and UCLA because they have these soft quotas on Asians. So they lobbied, they wanted to be in the American Indian category, but the American Indians didn't want them because they didn't want to share Bureau of Indian Affairs resources with them, uh, even though they're very similar to Alaska Natives and many, you know, in the in terms mm -hmm. of their being indigenous to a, a late late arriving state. So they couldn't become American Indians. They said, well, let's give us our own category. And the Census Bureau one, I said, there aren't enough of you to make that worthwhile. So they, so they eventually decided to put them together with 
Pacific Islanders. So Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders are their own separate category. But the irony is that even though people from the Philippines are literally their ancestors literally came from the from Pacific Islands mm-hmm. <laughs> because the Philippines is an archipelago, and they are more culturally anthropologically related to other Pacific Islanders, they stayed in the Asian classification. Mm. Yeah, this is <laughs> the whole thing is so. Uh, bizarre, but yeah. Uh, uh, but speaking of uh, Native Americans or any, or as the uh, government still calls them Indians, uh, how does one qualify as an Indian? And I, I have to point out for our readers, they might not know this, but you were the one, uh, the dude who really. Uh, I think you were the one that found that Elizabeth Warren had been listing herself in. Law, law faculty directories, like as far back as the 80s, as a Indian or Native American in the uh, what was it? Association of American Law Schools uh, directory or whatever. You were the one that really uh, shone the light on that. But uh, yeah, but so how does <laughs> uh, how does one get to be or how, how is one a uh, an Indian? Right, so American just as just to all one of the I'll very brief aside the Elizabeth Warren point. So I was the one who discovered she lists herself as a minority, and obviously it meant as an Indian in the books. But what was really damning because she could have really thought of herself as that. That's what she claimed, and she wasn't doing it for career reasons. But what was really damning is once she got the job at Harvard, she took herself out of that category. Quit, yeah. And I haven't heard of anyone giving a good explanation of why she had. You had a oneness with her Indian, uh, you know, her presumed Indian heritage in the 80s and early 90s, but as soon as she got to Harvard, she suddenly decided that she was no longer an Indian. But be that as it may, the Indian classification is, you could write a whole book about this, really, and endlessly fascinating. It also has a, a Directive 15 definition, which is uh, that you have to be an Indian by tribal membership or community recognition. Uh, that is broad enough that Elizabeth Warren might have actually qualified because she held herself out as an Indian and was like, I, as I mentioned in the book, she was asked to give a recipe to a, a recipe for a book called Pow Wow Chow as a Native <laughs> American. But um, unlike uh. in the other areas where the statistics are usually used for civil rights, affirmative action, and sort of record-keeping purposes, American Indian status comes up in all sorts of other ways because of the special status that Indian tribes have. So first mm-hmm. of all, we have a Bureau of Indian Affairs that has all sorts of programs geared towards Indians, and you have to be an Indian to qualify for them. We have special criminal statutes that of where you're allowed to be tried or not tried state or federal court depending on whether you're indian or not we have social welfare laws for indian children that depend on whether you're indian or not and the crazy thing is that there's a whole variety of different ways that one could prove or not prove that one's an Indian uh, based on, depending on what these particular law is. So uh, some of them go by tribal, federal tribal membership. Some are federal state tribal membership. Uh, Some are any recognized Indian tribe, including tribes that are not officially uh, federal or state. Some go by descent, uh, like, and they call this Indian blood quantum. So some go by one quarter Indian blood quantum, which are shocked to know that the Bureau of Indian Affairs to learn this actually actually give you a certificate <laughs> of Indian blood quantum, like making you a Michelin or whatever in Nazi Germany. Oh uh, and 
uh, where we have official, you know, certificates of blood quantum. And the, the, the one that's the sort of the most fun is that some statutes say, like, get any or all of those, plus anyone that the Secretary of the Interior deems to be an Indian. So the Secretary of the Interior could just declare people to be Indians. So the Indian identity is uh, very, very complicated, uh, and it's made even more complicated by the fact that you think the one really objective criteria is, oh, are you a member of a tribe? But there's two interesting things about being members of tribes, one of which is that um, the Cherokee tribal membership goes back to like 18. If you have an ancestor who was in the Cherokee in like 1830, you could be a member today. And that means there's at least one person who's only one four thousand ninety sixth Cherokee, but is still a member of the tribe. But, you know, it's not really in any meaningful way Cherokee any more than if you have some, you know, ancestor from 1700 who happens to live in Belgium that you're uh, Belgian. <laughs> or if you have somebody that's like a Visigoth or. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and the, uh, yeah, so that's one issue. And the other issue is that at least when you start going to state tribes or unrecognized tribes, that there are a lot of tribes that have just been made up recently for for economic reasons they could get casino contracts like you get affirmative action contracts and there's a lot of corruption in that regard some state legislatures will just recognize you know 20 white guys who got a uh who lobbied who gave money to them as a new indian tribe so even tribal membership and you could also buy tri some tribes that are legitimate tribes will let you buy tribal membership so really even having a tribal membership isn't any real evidence that you have any true connection to a legitimate Indian tribe. And there's been, uh, because of these programs and everything, there's been an explosion of, in the last 20, 30 years or so, of people um, uh, claiming to be Indian. Um, but, I mean, but far more than could possibly be uh, explained by just... Um, birth rates from like actual Indians, right? Like it's right. Yeah. So, right. So there's really two things going on. One thing going on <laughs> is that there were people who had like half or quarter Indian ancestry who back in the day were either ashamed of it or thought, it was yeah, but now it's cool. So, yeah. Now it's cool. So they yeah. add it. Yeah. And there are other people like Elizabeth Warren putting aside the careerist, you know, ambition she may have had who just, you know, have vague stories that they're an Indian, uh, from family lore and just, you know, put it down again because it does uh, sound cool. Uh, you know, one, and then of course there are people who definitely are doing it um, fraudulently. Uh, the uh, the uh, the Department of Transportation, Department of Commerce used to just basically take your word uh, for it if you said you were an Indian. And then by about three years ago, they recognized that there was massive, massive fraud going on. Mm -hmm. And now they do require uh, membership in a tribe, which, again, is not exactly foolproof, but at least it does give some objective evidence of something. Uh, one of my favorite statistics in the book is that someone did a study back about 10 years ago, and they compared how many people, like in 2002, when they started law school, in other words, they applied, they got in, uh, they said they were Native American at that time. And then 10 years later, they looked at the Census Bureau records of how many people in 2010 uh, in that age cohort actually said they were lawyers and Native American. And it was one-tenth as many. Now, some of that is explicable by the fact that not everyone who goes to law school ultimately becomes a lawyer. But it's not <laughs> one-tenth. It's probably like 70%, right. not 10%. So yeah. clearly there were a huge number of people who are 
uh, either falsely claiming to be Native American or had some legitimate claim to it but didn't really socially identify as such and once it wasn't useful, had no reason to ever say it again. Mm. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, do you mind going – we're almost to the end. Do you mind going on a couple more questions? I just uh, Sure, go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, so biracial and multiracial people, how are they classified? Because I think about this, uh, another example from my life. So a friend of mine from high school, uh, she was, you know, what they would consider mulatto or half white, half black. Father was black, mother was white. Uh, But if you did not know that her dad was a black dude, you'd never know. Uh, you know what I mean? Like you just, she was like very like pale white, had red hair. Um, and, uh, just like a very white looking girl. And then she got married, uh, to another dude I went to high school with who was blonde haired, blue eyed. And then they had kids. And then, so like their daughter, their firstborn is again, she would technically be what they would call a, back in the day, a, a quadroon i guess or one quarter black uh blue eyed blonde hair um but is she technically african-american uh, and you know being one quarter black uh you know how like uh you know how does that work <laughs> you know how what you know what is that what is that you know how are multiracial biracial people how are they classified how does that whole thing work out so the official definition of African-American slash black is anyone who has descent from one of the black races of Africa. So if you ever hear someone tell you their friend went from South Africa who was white, checked off the African-American box, or their friend from Egypt checked off the African-American box, I'm not saying that people never do that, but it's not actually the official. Like Elon mm-hmm. Musk is not African-American, right. uh, even though he's from South Africa. So, so basically that means that federal law has ironically sort of incorporated something of a one-drop rule in the sense that it doesn't say you have to be any percent, you know, 100% or even 50% descended, anyone with descent from the black race of Africa. So I'd say, in the, and, I, you know, and one thing we have to keep in mind, and this relates to your friend's story, is that people who we call black in the United States might be called something else in other countries because most African-Americans in the United States, especially ones who aren't recent immigrants, have... Are, are of mixed race, really. They have mm-hmm. some white ancestry. I think the average African-American I read somewhere has something like, I think, 20-something percent uh, European ancestry. So there's yeah. definitely uh, some people who identify as African-Americans, consider themselves African-Americans, other people think of them as that who are mostly European in origin, uh, just genetically, right? You have someone who is, uh, you know, 60% of African origin marries someone who's European uh, and they have a child. That child may only be 30%, but may identify as being black. And I think that's culturally accepted. And I think that you're, you know, and I know people who are very fair, who consider themselves to be black and I don't think they're, you know, they're not lying about it. Uh, but um, in the 1990s, there was a movement of people who were primarily people with one black parent or one white parent who didn't like this idea that they should just be considered black and they can only check in those days you're only allowed to check 
one box on the form and they lobby for a multiracial classification and they got a lot of support especially from the republican side uh but the democrats were beholden to the interest groups that existed who were afraid that if we had a multiracial classification that a lot of people who currently identify themselves as black or uh asian or or whatever uh will start checking that box and that will dilute their numbers making them less politically powerful as having fewer constituents but also when there's litigation and you have statistical baselines if multiracial is a classification and you're trying to prove discrimination against black people then you have a lower number of uh black people as your baseline to compare whatever statistic you're using for so anyway there was a big battle over this and the way the uh, government eventually resolved this was they rejected the idea of having a multiracial classification. Assumably, that would have been you check multiracial, then you check what, what race is within that. Uh, but instead, what they allowed you to do for the first time is check more than one box. So you don't have to check that you're black or white. You can check black and white. Now, one of the funny things, because this is just so government, like for those of us who are... So, so if you're Tiger Woods, do you just like check every box, basically, or... Uh, so Tiger Woods, you know, he could check, right, he's a Native American and uh, Thai and so Asian and black. I don't think he has European ancestry, but his kids do. Uh, so they could check all of them. But here's the funny <laughs> all thing. All of the above. <laughs> so, so the multiracial movement kind of petered out after that. They didn't win a full victory because there was no multiracial classification. But it's okay, but they'll count us as being more than one race, which is basically the same thing. Uh, the problem, that though, is that the civil rights groups didn't get, give up, and they mm. persuaded the Clinton administration bureaucracy to do a tricky thing in the end, which was, okay, we're going to let you check that you're both, say, black and white. But when we put that into statistical terms, when we do our data, we're going to count you as black. So it turned out that uh, there was a hierarchy. So if anyone who's black and something else was put down as black. Anyone who is uh, any kind of minority and white was a member of the minority group. And then there was like a hierarchy. Black and Asian is black. Yes. And so forth. Mm -hmm. So um, – uh, now, the Department of Education, oddly, doesn't do that. So they actually do report more than one race. But most federal agencies have basically undermined the victory at the multiracial movement got because while they allow you to check more than one box, they actually report you as only sort of the you know, the most minority, if you will, race. Uh, and uh, so, so – so, uh, and one thing I learned and you know, I didn't want I didn't get too much into the census in my book uh, in classified because there's a lot of books written specifically about the census and race. And so I thought that was covered uh, pretty well elsewhere. But one thing with uh, the census is I learned that if you are looking at census data as a researcher or you're a consumer of census data as someone just reading a newspaper, someone tells you something about the census, you have to look out to know which data set they're using because the mm -hmm. census actually reports the data. Sometimes they'll, they'll, they report different data sets. One data set will have anyone who checked off black and something else. Another one will only have pe who, people who check black only. Uh, and so same thing with whites and so forth. So uh, you'll get different, you know, slightly different baselines for whatever data you're using depending on whether you check the black only uh, data or the black and something else data. Mm. Yeah, this is just so. <laughs> it's just so interesting. Anyway, um, wanted to ask you about the uh, the the last chapter before the uh, conclusion, which is probably the most uh, eye opening for me. Is that the the chapter on government mandated racial categories in scientific and medical research? Uh, talk a little bit about you know why they do that, and then 
what happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you asked me about that um, because I wind up in a lot of interviews just talking about affirmative action because that's the most controversial area in the Supreme Court. Yeah, but you know, it's not really part of the book, though. I mean, affirmative action, you know. Right. So yeah. but the book is not a book for those. I don't know if that will please your your listeners or make them <laughs> not want to buy the book. But the book is actually not about affirmative action. It's about racial classification. Affirmative action obviously comes up because that's a, very, that's a area where we use it, where it's very controversial. But it's about classification. A lot of the Indian examples, American Indians do not involve affirmative action. They involve Bureau of Indian Affairs stuff, criminal law, family law, and so forth. The last chapter isn't about affirmative action at all. It's about, uh, in any way, it's about the fact that back in the 1990s, there was agitation by feminist groups who had actually a, a reasonable point. They said, all medical studies basically are done on men. Why men? Well, women have you know different you know they have menopause and premenopause and they have you know they have more going on hormonally essentially throughout their lives than men. So it's easier to get consistent data if you use men. But these women's rights advocates said, but but men and women are obviously different. They have they're different in a whole variety of ways. If we're studying like heart disease, you need to study it separately uh, in women, and you can't just rely on male data. So they got Congress to pass legislation saying that medical researchers have to include women. At the last minute, civil rights groups jumped on the bandwagon and said, yeah, and race too. They had no really good reason for the race thing because race in general is not well correlated with medical outcomes. Yes, there are certain diseases that are more likely to be in certain groups, but even then, those are because of genetic clusters, not because of race per se. We don't know, if we see like black people in the US have you know, higher rates of X disease, putting aside the, the social issues that might cause that as opposed to genetic, we don't know if that, that could just be because there's a lot of people from one particular tribal group in West Africa who had a lot of this, not because it's a general thing to black people. Right. But uh, but they, they said, we want to make sure that minorities are represented and uh, maybe we'll have some scientific value, but at least uh, minority groups can be assured that their interests are being considered and represented in the scientific process. Okay, so Congress passes legislation along those lines and tells the FDA, you have to require uh, people doing medical trials to include uh, people of different racial groups uh, and report the data that way. And NIH, National Institutes of Health, has to do the same thing when they fund research. Uh, but Congress didn't say that they had to use Statistical Directive 15, these crude big categories. They just told them use race. So the FDA and or NIH could have, you know, con con convened a group of geneticists and mm -hmm. anthropologists and sociologists and what would make sense, medically speaking, in this regard. But you could imagine that no one wants to do that politically. Right, right. What a nightmare to start talking about what is race and who gets to count. So what they did instead <laughs> is they did something wildly unscientific, which is they took these classifications that were only meant to be used for these statistical purposes that we talked about. So from now on, you have to use these classifications in your research, even though they don't make any scientific sense. Like, for example, even if you think that genetics is more highly correlated with race than I think, 
uh, people from Asia who are considered Asians again are not one race, even if you accept you know the standard concepts like people from India are not the same race as people from Asia. Uh, within the Hispanic classification, uh, you could be of any race and be Hispanic. The government even tells you that Hispanics could be of any race. You often see that in the paper. That's true. So it's completely it's not just meaningless data. It's counterproductive data. It doesn't make any. It, it, it's waste money. It wastes time, and it, it's really killed. I mean, I can give you the specific. A specific example where it killed people is when Moderna was uh, testing the uh, vaccine for COVID. The National Institutes for Health president, who had oddly enough in the past written against using race in medicine, told Moderna, you don't have enough Hispanics in your studies and therefore we're not going to let your drug be approved your vaccine be approved until you get more <laughs> and the head of Moderna was quoted saying oh nothing's more important to us than diversity like really not even curing covid uh but it turned out they had a gun to their head because the government was going to not approve them if they didn't do it so they delayed the vaccine by a couple of weeks which killed who knows how many people sure. but more but more generally, 20 years ago when these rules were coming into effect, I read the literature for 20 years ago and everyone in the field, the biomedical field, was convinced that 20 years from now, we would have individualized genetics-based medicine. We have cheap DNA tests, which we do. We figure out based on those DNA tests, oh, you're more susceptible to this or that. This drug will work better, this or that. And we haven't come anywhere near that. And partly it might be this was more difficult than they expected. But I think a good part of it is that the resources – that could have gone into uh, be, having more individualized genetic medicine, have gone into recruiting subjects from different ethnic and racial groups mm -hmm. and trying to ensure that they're represented. And, you know, you, have a certain, you only have a limited amount of money for your studies, and a lot of the money has gone into uh, essentially ensuring that you meet FDA and NIH rules on diversity, which, again, make no scientific sense. I mean, again, I'm Jewish. It might make sense for me to be worried, right? Jews have actually, uh, we have a very strong founder effect. Ashkenazi Jews from Europe originally um, have signature diseases where much higher rates of certain diseases like depression, lower rates of alcoholism. We have, we're genetically different from the general European population. I might worry that, hey, a, a standard treatment might not work for my group, but they don't ask any of the researchers to study Jews. They ask them to say Hispanics for which, which who don't have any reason to worry saying Hispanics, like saying American is such a big catch all. Yeah. So, so people, some people will say, Oh, we need to have enough representation of minorities. So minorities won't worry that they're being, that, that drugs don't work well for them or vaccines won't work well. But the only reason people would worry about it is there's no scientific basis for this worry is that people tell them that it's, that it's supposed to work. Like, yeah, like, I, I, I was just going to say, like, I don't think, like, you know, if a doctor goes into a black person and is like, we want to give you this for hypertension or something like that, and they want to be like, wait a minute, did you make sure you tested this drug on enough black people first? Or right. Yeah, like, right. I I, yeah <laughs> so, so there are there are some weird, you know, genetically isolated populations that you could say, oh, maybe we should be checking Icelanders yeah. or Hungarians, right? Instead, we're checking, we're using these just completely artificial classifications, which may have some sociological bases, may mean something in other contexts, but really, scientifically speaking, are completely bogus. And, you know, and, it's, and, and so, well, and when and when our companies try to do research abroad, ha they have to use these classifications that no mm. one in other countries uses. So imagine you're going to Asia, you're trying to get Japanese people to sign up for a study, and you ask them, are you white, Hispanic, Asian, or Native American? They're like, what? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it's so crazy. Is this crazy. a serious study? Is this pan to camera? Yeah, right. Um, all right, but again, uh, just moving on from that because, again, I, wanna, I don't want to keep it too long. But we've talked a little bit about how a lot of the stuff, these labels are just more ideological and political and uh, than really anything else. And you say in the book that these official racial and ethnic classifications, not only that, they're, they're self-fulfilling and they encourage people to think of themselves as these racial and ethnic categories. Like you said, you know, 50 years ago, no one really considered themselves Hispanic. And um, that's kind of a problem. And especially like um, sort of like how it ties into identity politics and the new um, this whole thing about uh, uh, white supremacy um, and white privilege and all that sort of thing. And, you know, all these uh, people that probably get that are just, you know, like, no, uh, you're white. So you have this and this and this and this and uh, sort of browbeats them for being white. And uh, the problem with that is it encourages white people who maybe never thought of themselves as this in that way before to think of themselves as white first and foremost, instead of, you know, Irish or, uh, or, uh, Swiss or Scottish or something like that. And that seems bad. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know I don't think there's anything like good that really comes from, uh, from, white people considering themselves white first and foremost, or like just having another uh, race or ethnic group considering their race, the, like the, the, the first thing about themselves, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not only that, you know, not to think of yourselves as Irish or Swiss, or whatever, not to think of yourself as a rock and roll fan or gay or Catholic <laughs> right, right. or any other identity you might have. And one of the other, yeah. So I talked about how shocked I was about, a couple of the, the things that we've talked about. Another shocking thing I discovered in the book is that there's this whole group of sort of progressive sociologists and ethnic studies professors who actually disagree with us and think it's a good thing for white people, what we call white people, to think of themselves primarily or exclusively in their identity as white. And their underlying theory is that uh, – we're never going to get, you know, racism is endemic to America and we can't just get rid of classifications. But what we could do is we can make white people more aware of their whiteness, think of themselves more as being white. Once they do that, in their mind, uh, white people will then recognize their white privilege and then join anti-racist groups and bring us to a brighter future. And then kumbaya, now, right? Yeah. Kumbaya. Yeah. Now, my supposition when I read this is that my prejudice, shall we say, was this is completely nuts that uh, humans we know are tribal uh, by nature. That's how uh, our species evolved. And if you tell people that you should think of yourself as being a white person in the long run, at least, if not in the short, and maybe the short run too, people say, well, if I'm a white person and that's my identity, those are you know black or whatever people there, they're my enemy. You know, they're competing for resources. I should help my group, not I should. Okay go and try to help them that's against you know human history human nature and i was you know i wasn't happy I'd, i guess to say this but i was I, I i felt like vindicated let's say that i actually did some research then and discovered that the social science evidence is exactly what i anticipated which is that the more 
which is that the more that someone thinks of him or herself as being a white person, the more likely they are to be prejudiced against other groups and to be racist and so forth. And I, you know, you're, if your le- readers think I'm exaggerating about about what I said about these progressives, Google, let them Google the phrase white racial consciousness, because it sounds like something you hear from David Duke, that we should have white racial <laughs> consciousness, but it's really, it's primarily a bunch of left-wing sociologists. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So, I mean, it just seems like, just sort of finishing up, it seems like the farther we get into the future, you know, the more and more uh, intermarriage there is between all these races and ethnicities and all this stuff, which is happening pretty much across the board, you know, uh, with Asians and whites and, and blacks and Hispanics and whatever. It seems like, you know, that the, the less and less this stuff is going to matter because everybody's going to be a little bit something, right? <laughs> I mean, like everyone's just going to be this hodgepodge of stuff from all over the globe, uh, of genetic material from all over the globe. So, um, you know, so sh- shouldn't we just junk the whole system at this point? I mean, I can, I can see keeping, uh, I don't know, something separate maybe for Indians and, uh, black Americans because just of the sort of uniqueness of their experience in America compared to everyone else. Right. But, um, but shouldn't we just junk this whole thing? I mean, what is, what is to be done? What do you, what do you think we should do? Yeah. So I call it a book for a separation of race and state for many of the same reasons we have a separation of church and state because, allowing the government to favor one group or the other inherently leads to conflict and war and so forth. But when I say that, I don't say that we need to get rid of all classifications tomorrow because, first of all, you know, we have differing views on how necessary some of the civil rights laws we have are. But as long as we have them, like Voting Rights Act, there's really no way to enforce it without knowing who's voting and whether they fit into one of the classifications that's protected. So that's one issue. The other issue, I think, is what you said, that you may, for you know, purposes of remediation, you may say, well, look, American Indians, especially ones who are still closely associated with their tribes and maybe live on these desolate uh, reservations, uh, and African Americans who are descended from slaves are categories that we should be cognizant of, not because of race so much, but because of historical experience. Uh, but that would not include someone like Elizabeth Warren, even someone who's just like one-eighth, you know, Navajo, but doesn't in any way have any kind of uh, discriminatory experiences right. from being that. Uh, so there's that. But And, and then I think, you know, um, we should just, when we if we have to classify people, I guess I have uh, two points. One is which we, we really should think long and hard before we require classification uh, do we really need it for for what reason and then for what reason if we are classifying for example to try to learn things sociologically to a large extent uh, we've become sufficiently diverse that these crude classifications uh, give us worse information than if we had nothing uh, the example I like to give is imagine someone wants to study how quote-unquote Hispanics are doing educationally in Florida well the Hispanic population of Florida includes a large number of Cubans who came after Castro fell another large number of Cubans who came in the Mariel Boatlift in 1980 who mm-hmm. has some different demographics and I had a family uh, member in that actually yeah, yeah okay so there you go uh, and you, then you 
have all the South Americans like Venezuelans and Argentines and uh, arguably Brazilians. Uh, we got everybody down here, man. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, to, you know, Puerto Ricans. I mean, yeah. Right. They're, yeah. Right. They're, they're, all the people who fled Puerto Rico after the big hurricane a few years ago. There's a whole area of Central Florida full of Mexican farm workers. These are all really yeah. disparate groups. And just like lumping them all together and calling them Hispanics isn't, you know, and, and using the average isn't really telling you anything useful. So, uh, for example, on the average, it may turn out that they're doing about the same as the general population, but it also might be the case that the Venezuelans and Cubans are doing really well and the Puerto Ricans and Mexicans aren't. And, you know, maybe something needs to be addressed uh, to with those groups to assist them or figure out why they're not doing as well. But you never know that because they did. Even for African-Americans now with 21 percent being first or second generation immigrants, they have higher incomes, higher mm -hmm. education. It might be distorting statistics and we may be thinking that African-Americans are doing better uh, than they really are. So you have to figure out what are yeah. you using, what, why, and then for the medical purposes, just get rid of it entirely. I be I, that's the one area I would say. You could tomorrow uh, get rid of these classifications entirely. If you want to do sociological studies about how, you know, who's getting treated under what basis, fine, but as far as Anything that actually has to do with science or medical treatment, you just abolish them entirely. Yeah, I mean, the only thing, so that I, think, uh, I have a good buddy who's uh, Jamaican. He's first generation from here. His parents immigrated from Jamaica. And uh, we were just like, you know, talking about like reparations one day or whatever. And, you know, it was like, well, would you even get reparations like from the United States for like slave reparations? Because, I mean, your parents weren't slaves here. Like, they just got here, you know, like, 15 minutes ago, basically, right? So, like, shouldn't you be applying to, I don't know, uh, Her Majesty's government, or His Majesty's government now for uh, for reparations? I mean, shouldn't it go that way instead of this way? Like, how, how, like you know, like if we're going to set up, like, a reparation system for, like, black people, how is that even going to work, you know, for – because we have this, so many immigrants now, like you said, coming over just from, from all over in the Caribbean, from Nigeria, uh, you know, elsewhere. I mean, it's, it's a – it's it's amazing how like uh granular and minute you can just sort of and how many different like subcategories you could like possibly make of all these things well take take barack obama yeah right right his, right his mother's family were was descended from slave owners and his father's family were slavers <laughs> right yeah slave traders no there was do you remember when he first ran when he was first running for president there was like those like really kooky like far like left uh like black groups that were like he's not really like we don't consider him black or if he wins we don't consider him to be the first black president because he doesn't have they said basically like he doesn't have quote-unquote slave blood right because right. his mother yes. was white and his father was from africa so he's not really they were like he doesn't like have he's not a part of the african-american experience in the way that, like, you know, the type of, like, your family was brought over here as slaves and, uh, blah, blah, and, you know, you have ties to that. And they were like, and he doesn't. So we're not going to consider Barack Obama the first black president. And the, you well, know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's, every once in a while, there's a minor unrest on one, <laughs> on one of the major university campuses among black students because, uh, there's someone of that, you know, of a mindset along those lines, and they have a point where they say, hey, wait a second, affirmative action was supposed to help 
people who are descendants of American slaves, but here I am at Harvard and I'm meeting the other black students and they're almost all first or second generation immigrants and a lot of the ones who aren't have one white parent. Mm -hmm. And what about those of us who, you know, this was originally intended for? Are you, are you looking for, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the official rationale is diversity, but to the extent that this is remediative, are you really looking to help the African-American community are just looking for aesthetic diversity where you have people who look right. black but aren't the kind of people these programs are meant for. Yeah, and it's like, again, this is not a book about affirmative action, but even like affirmative action programs, like, you know, it's like basically like the elite schools, you know, the Ivies and Stanfords and Dukes and whatever, it, the, the kids that are, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of the black kids that are uh, going there that are, uh, benefiting from affirmative action are not like these are not like for the most part kids from uh, uh, the hood or uh, you know ve you know impoverished families or anything like these are basically um, upper middle class uh, you know the the children of like upper middle class black professionals or upper class black professionals who without affirmative action instead of maybe getting into Harvard they'd get into uh, Emory or Vanderbilt or something like that. And you know what I mean? So uh, even in these programs, these people that are uh, using it, like I said, is you're not really, you're not taking a kid like straight out of Compton, like into Harvard. I mean, that does happen, but for, for the most part, uh, you know, that's not what's happening. You're just basically sort of shifting in and like the, the kid that goes to Vanderbilt or Emory without it would have probably gone to stay, uh, you know, like, uh, very good state school like University of Michigan, University of North Carolina, University of Florida, something like that. Like it's it's just basically shifting people one rung up instead of like bottom rung to like top rung, you know. Well, again, so that goes to get to the issue of, you know, when you're using the classifications, what what is your goal? So if your goal is to be able to in your guidebook show lots of pictures of people of different colors and appearances doesn't really matter mm. whether they're from Africa or from you know Compton but if your goal is actually hey we're trying to redress historical wrongs and make sure that people whose ancestors were excluded from mainstream society maybe they're still sort of living on the margins uh, in segregated neighborhoods, segregated schools, and so forth, are brought into the mainstream. That would you'd have to have a much narrower classification of who you're trying to recruit. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we've gone super long. Um, I apologize for that, but there's just such an interesting book. I just wanted to make sure we get to like everything or a lot of it. Uh, but I'll end uh, just with the, the final question I ask uh, everybody that comes on the podcast. And that's basically, uh, you know, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? Or uh, what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having read it? I would think that the reader from this book would probably, be, I mean, it's un I, I hate to say it, but it'll make you much more uncomfortable reading the news. Because <laughs> you, you'll constantly, once you read this book, every time you see someone referring to the Hispanic vote mm. or, you know, or, the or let's you know the NPR will say we're going to talk today about how Asian Americans are reacting to the final thing. You'll think to yourself, what are they talking about? These are these these groups, whatever their statistical reasons for being together, uh, are not really you know uniform, and it's not really telling us good information 
by just plugging that together. I mean, NPR will so that were like they were doing this big series in November in October 2020 about the Asian American vote, but then they go to the Chinese American Democratic Club of San Francisco, the Korean Republican Club of Raleigh, North Carolina, right? Because there's no such thing culturally as Asians are from right. different countries, different cultures, etc. So it'll make you much more. Right now, I think Matt, most of us are like the fish swimming in the water. They won't even realize we're wet because <laughs> that's just the atmosphere. And so we've come to accept these classifications as sort of being natural, inevitable, and really telling us something about the world. And I would hope that after you read the book and you realize how arbitrary and incoherent they are, that you will become less comfortable with them and uh, maybe join uh, me in believing that we should start separating race and state. All right. Well, well said. Okay. Well, before we go, is there uh, anything else you want to plug? Anything uh, else going on or social media, anything like that, website? Uh, you, you can follow me on Twitter at Prof D Bernstein, P-O-R-F-D-B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. Uh, the book Classified is available on Amazon. If you're a little short in cash, uh, it's only 10 bucks on Kindle. Uh, it's pretty easy to read. It's written for the lay reader, not for academics mm -hmm. or lawyers. So that's basically it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, yeah, as he said, it's an uh, easy-to-read book. Uh, it's uh, not particularly long. There's about 200 pages and then you know all the uh, footnotes and all that stuff to it. Um, but uh, So you can get through it in a few hours, uh, a few maddening <laughs> – <laughs> a few maddening hours you're probably going to want to uh you know just chuck up your hands uh every five minutes or so just because the whole situation the, the racial classification system is just so perverse and weird um that it'll make you do that but i highly highly recommend it um to everybody out there is very eye-opening book very very interesting um just, just pointing out how we got uh, to where we are with this with this weird system. So make sure you guys all go out there and get it. And again, that book name is Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America and the author, uh, Professor David E. Bernstein. So Professor Bernstein, again, sorry for uh, keeping you long, but I uh, really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And, and thank you very much for uh, writing the book because it's, uh, uh, I think you, uh, you did yeoman's work on this. This was a fantastic book. So thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having the great conversation. Uh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And uh, for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our Twitter account for the podcast. You can reach out to us there, too, if you have any questions, comments, or you know, book suggestions, any of that sort of stuff. Uh, so, you know, give us a follow, uh, send us a DM, all that kind of stuff. Um, our, what, what is it? Ill books at ill books. I L L books is the, uh, podcast or is the, uh, Twitter handle. So again, check that out. And, uh, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, mom. Bye-bye. Neat the stars above He was the sweetest man you ever did see When he held me in his arms And told me of my many charms He 
kissed me while the fiddles played the Bonaparte's retreat. All the world was bright when he held me on that night, and I heard him say, please don't ever go away. When he held me in his arms and told me of my many charms, he Kissed me while the fiddles played the Bonaparte's Goodbye, little boy. 